Good morning. I'm Father Spencer. I'm one of the co-rectors here at the table. The Lord be with you. I have the honor of getting to proclaim some good news to us today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Beloved, today we proclaim the good news that in the midst of our temptation to believe that nothing good can be accomplished without compromising our tactics, Jesus is revealing that the divine will never employ unholy means in pursuit of a holy end. So today, lay down the tools of the enemy. You are free to pursue goodness, justice, and holiness in love. Our first Samuel passage today kind of replays the story of Samuel anointing Saul to be the leader of Israel. Just a reminder, this request for a leader in the shape of a king from Israel is kind of a diversion or a turning away from God's will for them. And so it's a move away from what God has ordained for them and a move towards what other nations are doing. In the previous passage, it says, set up a ruler to judge us like all the other nations. So God has granted their requests, and our passage makes it clear that in granting that request, Saul is the one. He is the one to be anointed. In our Acts passage, Paul is recorded as saying, the God of the people of Israel chose our mothers and our fathers and made the people great during their sojourn from the land of Egypt. Then God overthrew seven nations in the land of Canaan, gave them their land as their lot. Then God gave them Saul. After God removed Saul, God chooses David as their ruler. In God's testimony about David, God said, I have found David to be a man after my heart who will carry out all my wishes. It's interesting holding these two passages in tension or reading them alongside each other and holding Saul in the proper context and seeing that as Paul goes through Israel's history, there's no mention or distinction about this being a disruption or a turning away from God's plan for them. Paul's listeners would, of course, have always remembered this. This would have been inherent to the way that they heard this story in this oral tradition. But as modern Gentile readers, we often forget this. It's easy for us to read these as flat texts. And so it's easy to hear Paul's recounting of Israel's history as, okay, this is how God was at work. This is what God desired for his people. The passage goes on to say that God replaces Saul with David, who is to be a man after God's own heart which we know, David's own rule, is scattered with evidence that he perhaps did not end up living up to this label. There's genocides, the slaughter of women and children, his rape of Bathsheba. In Paul's recounting of Israel's history, he, re- he rehashes how God has led Israel to Canaan. He credits, call- he- he credits God with overthrowing other nations and giving their land to Israel. The book of Joshua recounts this story as being littered with successive genocides of the Canaanite people, including women and children. Judges seems to undermine this this narrative by saying that instead of there being a complete extermination, that these people whose land was taken from them actually remained, but they were hostile to the rule of Israel in this place. So it was striking to me as I was reading this, this week in preparation how we often, if we just take Scripture at face value, can say, well, I guess this is what God intended. God gave over the land to his people. God commanded that his people kill women and children. Dr. Wilder Gaffney makes the point that whether one reads these passages as literal or as literary devices, their scriptural accounts, the fact that they make up the Scripture that we see as God's word to us, 
It counts, its accounts of conquests have been used to justify colonization, occupation, enslavement. We don't need to look any further than how native peoples have been massacred and moved off their land here, all in the name of Christ. So there's a way of reshaping or reading these texts that endorses or even lionizes acts of genocide, conquest, colonization, occupation, and enslavement. One might even think that this is a validation that sometimes you have to employ unholy means to pursue a holy end. You might have to do the wrong thing, but do it for the right reasons, and that'll be okay. This logic says from time to time we need to inhabit postures that run completely counter to the kingdom to get kingdom work done. And I think at this point is a good time for us to just press pause briefly and ask, what is the Bible? <laughs> Seems natural. Some of you may have been following the testimonies about UAPs this week. Don insisted I talk about this. If you weren't following it, UAPs stand for Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. So UFOs, but I guess that has kind of been stigmatized. So UAP, yeah. Uh, I was talking about these testimonies that are coming out. It's, it's fairly interesting, definitely for the sake of our conversation. There's nothing conclusive at all, but it's curious. But I was talking with some of my friends this week about this, and one of my friends who I went to Bible school with years and years ago who no longer really identifies as a Christian, was saying, wow, I can't wait to see, you know, if we continue to get evidence of these things, that there is life elsewhere, what that'll do to people's Christian faith. He's like, did God give the Bible to them? Did the Bible come to them on whatever planet they reside on? And I was, I was kind of floored at first, but then I thought, well, what he's saying illuminates a lot of the inherent assumptions about the way that we read Scripture, a lot of us perceive the Bible as if it just kind of floated down from the sky and landed in somebody's lap, and we're like, wow, this is how we got God's Word. So now we just have to blindly follow whatever's in here, read it flatly and plainly. This is how we land with, in a place where people can say, God said it, I believe it, so that settles it. Or, if you want to put it on a t-shirt, I'm going to take God at His Word. But in fact, the scriptures are a story of God's presence in creation and his, the story of God's reconciliation work going on in creation. So the scriptures didn't just hover down from the sky. They contain in them a revelation of the divine as perceived and understood by the writers. The Bible was written by humans, but the spirit was at work in their writing. So this means at least two things. One... If there is life out there somewhere, then their canon of Scripture will certainly look a lot different than ours. That does not change the fact that God is present and at work, restoring all of creation, not just on earth. So the story of God's reconciliation work on a different planet may have a different shape. So their canon of Scripture may look different, but the character of God cannot look different. And it's crucial at this point to remember that the way that we, we study, we read all of Scripture is through the interpretive lens, the interpretive frame of Jesus. So whenever there's a reading that we don't fully understand or that can be interpreted differently, we have to hold up that passage against the character of God as shown to us, as revealed to us in Christ. So in our Acts passage, 
Paul's overview of Israel's history, it concludes with, from this seed, from David's lineage, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. God has been throughout this whole history, the whole point of of Paul recounting this, is to illustrate that God has been pursuing relationship this entire time, and it culminates in Christ. At this point, we turn to our gospel passage, the temptation of Christ. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness mirrors Israel's story. They both enter wilderness through water. The Israelites enter the wilderness through the, the parting of the Red Sea, and Jesus is entering the wilderness directly after his baptism. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Both face temptation. As the passage says, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. So the temptation doesn't have anything to do with doubting that Jesus is God's agent or God's Son or whether he can perform a miracle. But instead, this temptation is all about acting for his own benefit at the tempter's behest, outside of God's will. He is tempted to become so focused on his own need that he ceases to trust God. Jesus says, not by bread alone does humanity live, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And just as Christ's temptation mirrors the temptation of the Israelites and mirrors their story, Jesus actually responds by quoting passages from Deuteronomy and from the Old Testament. So Jesus saying, man does not live by bread alone, is from Deuteronomy 8.3, which is when Israel is given manna from heaven. Then the next scene, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city at the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written that God's angels will protect you. Here the tempter takes him from the margins out in the wilderness to the political, social, religious center. And Jesus says, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, referring to when God's people are lacking water and they doubt God's faithfulness. They doubt God's life-giving purposes and doubt God's presence. Jesus will not demand a display from the divine, but instead chooses to trust Then the final temptation is at the top of a very high mountain where the devil showed him all the dominions of the world and their glory and says, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. In verses 8 and 9 here, Satan claims control of all the kingdoms and empires of the world. There's so much more to be said about this. The logic of this world, governments, political parties, businesses, They're all guided by principalities and powers that run counter to the kingdom. So whether your theology includes a Satan who's kind of behind the scenes pulling the strings or you see it as being evil at work in the systems and structures of the world around us, both of those are inherent and clear here. And both of those are illustrating a total logic and assumption about the way that the world works and the best way to engage with the world around us that runs completely counter and opposite to the kingdom. Jesus says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Holy One, your God, and serve only God. This is Deuteronomy 6.13. It's guidance to Israel that they should not forget the Lord when they enter into the land, the promised land when they live in a city that they didn't build, when they're drinking water from cisterns that they didn't dig, that they should still serve God. 
So Jesus in the wilderness is tempted to act for his own benefit. He's tempted to lose trust and demand a display from the divine. And Jesus is tempted to wield worldly systems of power. Bless you. (laughs) Where others have failed, where we have failed, Jesus does not. Jesus overcomes by trusting in the goodness and the presence and the faithfulness of God. Recently, I read somewhere that uh, a famous person called a modern politician the new Moses. I would call this a massive misreading of Scripture, but that would assume a reading of Scripture. (laughs) Jesus is the... Thanks. (laughs) Jesus is the new and the better Moses. There is a theological approach that many of us maybe have brushed shoulders with, maybe we were steeped in it, that relents and in the face of difficult texts will say, the text seems to say it. So even if it seems evil through our modern frame, to God be the glory. But in Jesus, in our most clear picture of the divine that we have, in God made flesh, we see that no amount of glory justifies God's wielding of evil. Friends, this good news is at least twofold. Jesus withstands temptation, remains sinless, so that he can go on and die for our salvation, so that he can continue in his salvific work for the entire world. But also, Jesus is showing us that God is trustworthy. God is safe. That you can trust God. You don't have to say, I love you, God, because you're afraid of what God might do to you if you don't say that. We uh, are going to sing, We Make No Peace With Oppression Later. Uh, Remy always sings this song as, we will make no peace with the pressure instead of oppression. (laughs) And I think that that's actually pretty apt. I I dig it. But I think there's, I notice in my body when I think about that, when I sing along with him, that there's all these different ways that we try to cope with what we perceive as the reality around us. We notice the way that shame manifests in our lives, the way that fear is there. We see our motives float to the surface and we wonder if we can corral them if we can make peace with pressure, if we can make peace with fear or coercion, or if we can wrangle them in some way to do kingdom work, if they can do good work in our lives or in the world around us. But here, we are confronted with the good news that we will never be called to use the tools of the enemy to do kingdom work. The divine will never try to harness our fear, our shame, violence, coercion for the kingdom. And we are free from the lie that we have to do that from time to time. So friends, where do you find yourself tempted to return to Egypt or to create an idol or to hoard manna? Where are you tempted to believe that the only way to get what you need is to compromise on your values for some period of time? Where are you tempted to believe that the only way to get kingdom work accomplished is by picking up the tools of the enemy? Fear, coercion, violence. Beloved, Jesus is revealing to us today that God will never wield the tools that he is saving us from. And we are free from the lie that we have to pick up those tools. You are free today to walk in love while you pursue the goodness and holiness of God. 
Friends, let's respond by coming to the table today, coming to the table in confidence that you are welcomed and beloved and safe. Come and feast on the God who is love and be empowered to go from here working for justice, holiness, and goodness while continuing to walk in a posture of love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.